The Book of Judges, a dark time in Israel's history, a pattern of failure, failure to follow God's law, failure to train up the next generation, failure to remember and celebrate God's faithfulness. We may be tempted to see the judges as heroes of the faith. However, the only hero of this story is God himself. The people of God chose the pleasures of sin over the promises of God, and the story of Judges is our story as well. In a desperately wicked and fallen world, the book of Judges reveals both the disgrace of sin and the deliverance only God can provide. Well, we finally made it to the end of the book of Judges. I know that you may have felt a little bit like we've been waddling through the gutter, but we've made it. A book that began with such incredible promise of God to to be a blessing, a leader, a provider, a protector for his people has completely slid into incredible disgrace. The first 16 chapters... We had some incredible stories that allowed us to see not just the disgrace of man. I mean, chapter after chapter, we were able to witness their idolatry. We were able to witness their rebellion, their outright disrespect and wickedness before God. But in each and every time, we also saw the gracious response of God, who empowered a broken person, and use them to deliver his people for his glory. The first 16 chapters allows us to see the disgrace of sin and the gracious deliverance of God and how God just loves to take broken people and inspire inspire them and empower them for his work and his glory. But the last five chapters of Judges have been different. There's no heroes. There's no redemption. There's just a continued and graphic spiral into chaos. That's where we pick up up our story, what began with so much promise. Has ended in a disgraced state. We've seen a disgraced home mixed with a disgraced spiritual leader. And when those two combined, we find ourselves in a broken culture that has ended and finalized in a disturbing position that we went through last week. And I wish that I could tell you that at the end of the book, these people find union with God. I can't. It gets worse. Turn with me, if you will, please. Book of Judges, chapter 20. The book of Judges, chapter 20, begins this way, verse 1. Then all the sons of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, came out and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And now, again, if you remember last week, I mean, what happened last week, which was uh, adultery, domestic abuse, gang rape, where someone was dismembered and mailed out to 12 different spots. I mean, it was madness. It was crazy. And it led the people to finally ask a question, what happened? How did we get here? And you have a little pocket of hope that as you start chapter 20, that all the people are gathering together, assembled as one man to the Lord. And you have hope, maybe, maybe they've recognized what they need. It isn't a king. Maybe they've recognized that the problem isn't political. That it's not social. That it's not financial. Maybe they finally recognize it's spiritual, right? Right? But then we keep going. Verse 2. As all the people gather before the Lord, verse 2, the chiefs of all the people, 
even of all the tribes of Israel, took their stand in the assembly of the people of God. 400,000 foot soldiers who drew the sword. Now the sons of Benjamin heard that the sons of Israel had gone up to Mitzpah. And the sons of Israel said, tell us, how did this wickedness take place? So the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came with my concubine to spend the night at Gebeah, which belongs to Benjamin. But the men of Gebeah rose up against me and surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me. Instead, they ravished my concubine so that she died. And I took hold of my concubine and cut her in pieces and sent her throughout the land of Israel's inheritance. For they have committed a lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. Behold, surprise, all you sons of Israel, give your advice and counsel here. Man, there's so much wrong with this section. And it all begins with this duplicitous leader. I mean, once again, it begins with this Levite. And to remind you, Levites, they were the chosen instruments of God. They were called to have a special relationship with God and have a special role for God's people. They were the hands of God. They were the tribe of God. They were to be the instruments of God. They were the clergy, the men of the cloth of their day. So as these people gather together, what seems like a very spiritual and good thing, quickly we realize they're just going through motions. Because as they gather before the Lord, wondering, God, what should we do? First, I want you to notice who they brought. As everyone's seeking, God, what's going on? What do you want us to do? They came armed, didn't they? 400,000 soldiers. They already came with their decision made. They're just asking God for agreement, not direction. Everyone gathers before the throne of God with our 400,000 soldiers, number one. And number two, we see this Levite at work. As everyone's there armed with their soldiers, the Levite gives his response filled with half-truths and outright lies. It says, I came with my concubine to spend the night at Gebeah, which belongs to Benjamin. But the men of Gebeah rose up against me, surrounded the house at night because of me. They intended to kill me. Instead, they ravished my concubine so that she died. Pause. Is that how you remember last week? Let's go back. Let's go back. Judges chapter 19, starting at verse 22. Let's go back and remember what happened. Judges 19, verse 22. While they were celebrating, behold, surprise, men of the city, certain worthless fellows surrounded the house, pounding the door, and they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man saying, bring out the man who came into your house that we might have relations with him. Then the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my fellows, please don't act so wickedly. Since this man has come into my house, do not commit this act of folly. Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out that you may ravish them and do to them whatever you want. But do not commit such an act of folly against this man. Verse 25, but the men would not listen to him. So the man, the Levite, seized his concubine, brought her out to them, and they raped her and abused her all night until morning, then let her go at the approach of dawn. If you remember from last week, the Levite slept through the whole thing. Woke up in the morning, found this concubine barely alive, where most people believe she died in transit to his house, where he then chopped her up into 12 pieces. I mean, you see this religious leader, right? Everyone's coming. This is a pastor. He's a man of the cloth. He's clergy. He's a Levite. What happened? And he whips them into the frenzy. He sees them with all their armies. He says, I'm an innocent bystander. I just went to go there. Number one, they sought to kill me. No, they didn't. Would have been better for you if they did. And in, instead of killing me, they reached in to try to grab me to kill me, and they took my concubine. 
No, they didn't. You pushed her out, closed the door. And I don't think any, of us, any one of us should look past what the men of Gebeah did. But let's be honest. This Levite sin too. So you have this duplicitous leader whipping these people into a frenzy, giving his incorrect side of the story, verse 6. And as a result, he said, I took hold of my concubine and cut her into pieces and sent her throughout the land of Israel's inheritance, for they have committed a lewd and disgraceful act in Israel. I know you would feel like I did. What they did to my concubine was horrible. We need to address it. There's one other time where someone cut up something in 12 pieces and sent it out. Years later, King Saul would do this when there was a need within the people of Israel as a means to gather them together. Look what it says, 1 Samuel 11. Talking about Saul, King Saul, he took a yoke of oxen, cut them into pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. You ever wonder why the Levite cut his concubine up to 12 pieces and sent her out? Most believe it was a similar message. Same thing's going to happen to your wife if you don't act. This innocent Levite, air quotes, took his position, his moral high ground, his false piety, chose to be an instrument of God, the mouthpiece of God, and whipped these people into a frenzy. And so they would be instruments of his vengeance. Instruments of his will instead of God's will. And I want to tell you, God had already set this up. He had provided protections for the people in his law. So that one misguided leader couldn't direct the whole people into opposition to God. God had set up these guidelines. Look at this in Numbers the book of Numbers, chapter 35, this is the law of God. If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death at the evidence of witnesses. Hey, murder's not okay. God wants to have justice, but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. How many witnesses is testifying in this case? One. Why do you think God said, hey, listen, you got to have more than one witness? That says, I know you. I know you're going to spin things for your protection. God says, I'm not against capital punishment, but we need to be righteous and just in this. He continues, look at what he says in Deuteronomy 13. If you hear in one of your cities which the Lord your God is giving you to live in, anyone saying that some worthless men, that's exactly what happened in Gebeah, same phrase, worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods whom you have not known. Then you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly. Listen, if you start hearing that something funky is going on in another town, don't show up with your 400,000 soldiers. Investigate it thoroughly. Spend time. Think for yourself. You're God's people. You're his chosen people to be a light on a hill, a blessing to the world. God set up all these laws so this wouldn't happen. One extra thing I want to show you. Look at Deuteronomy 12. You shall seek the Lord at the place which the Lord your God will choose from all of your tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. 
There you shall bring your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, the contribution of your hand, your votive offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. There also you and your household shall eat before the Lord your God and rejoice in all your undertakings in which the Lord your God has blessed you. In this time period, the presence of God was in Shiloh. But as you see, in Judges chapter 20, they inquire as the Lord at Mitzpah. Why are they going to Mitzpah? Most believe they'd simply just pick up the Ark of the Covenant and walk it to wherever was convenient for them. They want God to show up to them. It's really out of the way to go to God for something as important as this. And I want to make sure you see, because you read this and you be, it's so easy for people to get caught up and it's like, yeah, these are people coming before the Lord. They want to be righteous instruments of God. But what we see are a bunch of half-truths and a people going through the motions, acting like they're pleasing God, but really just want God to agree with them. They don't want to agree with God. And this one leader, the duplicitous leader, whips them all into a frenzy. Nothing is as it should be. It may look spiritual, it might sound good, but at its core, there are leaders and masses of people going and failing in everything God had demanded of them. Their emotions were hot, their leaders were stirring them up into a frenzy. I was reading this passage, thinking about the past few years in our culture. Is it possible that something similar happened to the church in the last two years? Is it possible that we allowed our emotions and some questionable spiritual leaders to influence us and whip us into a frenzy too? I mean, think about the last two years. The most divisive in the Christian church I've ever experienced in 24 years of ministry. Pastors calling out pastors, Christians calling out Christians. I gotta ask you, do you think it's possible that the Christian church got whipped into a frenzy in an emotional time, a time of worry and anger. The Bible warned us about that as well. The Bible gave us direction. I want to invite you, put your thumb in James, flip over to the New Testament to another book that begins with J, the book of James. Book of James, chapter 1. At a time when the early church was enduring turbulent times in life, when they were surrounded by questionable leaders and iffy theology, James gave the early church this wisdom. James, chapter 1, 19. Says, This you know, my beloved brethren, everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all the remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted which is able to save your souls and prove yourselves to be doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked, looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful, a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. James cautioned to the early church. Quick to hear. Slow to speak. Slow to anger. Man, church, you are not at your best when you're angry. 
Then James says, hey, and make sure you're not just looking at their issues, you're looking at your issues. Make sure you're allowing the word of God to work in your life. Make sure that you're allowing the truth of God to transform your heart. Don't for a moment think that you're God's instrument of righteousness because you know the truth, but you're not doing the truth. What a powerful reminder for God's people today and a much-needed truth for God's people back in the book of Judges. What began with so much promise ended in a situation that is completely wrong. But we like to think, we like to think that that this, in this turbulent time, people would turn to the Lord. What we end up seeing is a continued action of a troubled nation. Look at verse 12. Sorry, let's look at verse 8. Then all the people arose as one man, saying, Not one of us will go to his tent, nor any of us return to his house. But now this is the thing which we will do to Gabeah. We will go up against it by lot, and we will take ten men of every hundred throughout the tribes of Israel, a hundred out of every thousand, a thousand out of every ten thousand to supply food for the people. That when they come to get to, to Gabeah of Benjamin, they may punish them for all the disgraceful acts that they have committed in Israel. Thus all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. You see this troubled nation, first thing we're going to see is rash vows. They haven't even heard from the Lord yet. They heard this duplicitous leader give his half-truths, whip everyone into a frenzy. They react, I know what we're going to do. We're going to punish those men of Gebeah. A term punish, the instrument of God. We're going to give them what God demands. Those men are sinners. And if you've been going through the book of Judges, you might be thinking, what? Yes, the men of Gebeah are sinners. So just about every man in Israel this time. Idolaters, adulterers. I mean, sin was rampant, but all of a sudden, everyone's uniting against this one group. And again, I'm not defending the people of Gebeah. What I want you to recognize is the way all of these people all of a sudden decided they're going to be God's righteous hand against this sin without addressing any of their own. And they make this rash vow. We're all in this. We're all in this together. It's us against him. Verse 12. Again, we have this hope that cooler heads would prevail. As 400,000 people strong come, verse 12, then the tribes of Israel sent men through the entire tribe of Benjamin saying, what is this wickedness that has taken place among you? Now then deliver up the men, the worthless fellows in Gebeah, that we may put them to death and remove this wickedness from Israel. Fair question. Most people would be able to agree those men in Gebeah were wrong. What they did was criminal. What they did should not be allowed But see, the men of Gebeah were part of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe of Benjamin react to people calling out their sin much like we react when people call out ours. Not with humility, crying out for mercy, but with rebellion and anger. Look what they did, verse 13, end of 13, it says, But the sons of Benjamin would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the sons of Israel. The sons of Benjamin gathered from the cities to Gebeah to go out to battle against the sons of Israel. From the cities on that day, the sons of Benjamin were outnumbered. 26,000 men who draw the sword beside the inhabitants of Gebeah who were numbered. 700 choice men. Out of all these people, 700 choice men were left-handed. Each one could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. I mean, these were gifted guys. 
Then the men of Israel aside Benjamin were numbered, 400,000 men who drew the sword. All these were men of war. First thing we see are rash promises. People of God gather together. People of God decide, we don't need to wait for God. We're going to judge that person's sin without addressing our own, by the way. And we'd love to see the people of Benjamin say, hey, 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 you know what? You're right, you're right, you're right. Let's address this sin. But the people of Benjamin, they respond much like we do. Anyone else do that? You work so hard to hide your sin. You work so hard to validate your sin. Then someone calls you out on it. What's the first thing that comes out of your life, out of your heart, out of your mouth? Rarely is it humility. I cry for forgiveness. I mean, that's not what comes out of mine. So often we want to defend ourselves. We want to fight for ourselves. War is what just comes out. And that's what came out here. You have a troubled nation, half of it making rash vows. The other in their stubborn commitments, they don't want to address sin. They don't want to call wrong, wrong. That's what takes us to the third point, which is hard lessons. By the way, I don't want you to miss the disparity of troops. You have 400,000 on one side. You have 26,000 on the other. This is what happens. Verse 18. The people of Israel are now in civil war. Verse 18. Now the sons of Israel rose, went up to Bethel, inquired of God and said, who shall go up first for us to battle against the sons of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. I'll hit pause there for a minute. Good for them. Kind of. They didn't say, hey, God, should we battle? What'd they say? Hey, God, we're fighting. Who do you want to go first? God says, Judah first. I want you to notice something. In your Bibles, it might say Judah shall go up first, but shall go up is in italics. Anyone else have that in their Bibles? What that means is the people who interpreted Scripture added that. Because in the Hebrew, in the Hebrew, it just says Judah first. Hey, God, we're fighting them. Who do you want to go first? Judah. That's it. Let's go back to uh, Judges chapter 1. Judges chapter 1, verse 2. Remember, this is the very beginning when God told them, I want you to go conquer the promised land. Look at what God said. Verse 2, the Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. Shall go, meaning to rise up with authority, to make it happen in God's power. That phrase, shall go, in verse 2, does not exist In Judges 20. In Judges chapter 1, hey God, who do you want to go? You guys go up, my power, I'm before you, you're going to win. Chapter 20, hey God, we're going to go fight. Who should we go? Judah. Look what happens, verse 19. In the Hebrew, you begin to wonder, you begin to think, oh, I don't think this is going to go well. Verse 19. So the sons of Israel rose in the morning and camped against Gebeah. The men of Israel went out to battle against Benjamin, 400,000, and the men of Israel arrayed for battle against them at Gebeah. Then the sons of Benjamin came out of Gebeah and fell to the ground on that day, 22,000 men of Israel. First day of battle, Israel, outnumbering 400,000 to 26,000. Lose 22,000 people and lose the battle. Maybe I would get them to return to the Lord, right? We have hopes. Okay, maybe they're going to get it. Verse 22, but the people, the men of Israel, encouraged themselves, encouraged themselves, arrayed for battle again in the place where they had arrayed themselves the first day. So their response, okay, another round. Let's go. 
They set everyone up in line. They have their plans. They have their strategies. Verse 23, then the sons of Israel went up and wept before the Lord. Doesn't that sound weird? They went up before the Lord until evening, inquiring of the Lord, shall we again draw near for battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin? You already set it up. You're already going. They're not asking for God's direction. They're asking for God's agreement for their plans. Hey, God, we're going to go. Will you bless us? Again, you got to know what's going to happen. And the sons of Israel came against the sons of Benjamin the second day. Benjamin went out against them from Gebeah the second day and fell to the ground again. 18,000 men of the sons of Israel, all these drew the sword. Second day of loss. Then all the sons of Israel and all the people went up, came to Bethel and wept. Thus they remained there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening. They offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Verse 27. The sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the ark of the covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, Aaron's son, stood before it to minister in those days. And look at what they said, saying, Shall I yet go out to battle against the sons of my brother Benjamin, or shall I cease? Hey, God, finally, third day. Hey, God, what do you want us to do? The first two days, God, we're doing this. Hope you bless us. Give us the cross. Day three, after two days of failure, okay, maybe we're not in God's favor. Hey, God, should we continue to battle or should we stop? Look at God's response. The Lord said, go up for tomorrow. I will deliver them into their hands. Good job. Now that you're asking for my permission, now that you're seeking my direction, okay, now go. What you read over the next verses is a very detailed account of how the people of Israel are victorious over the tribe of Benjamin. This is how it ends, verse 47. Out of that 26,000 people, men, 26,000 army, verse 47, 600 men are left. 600 men turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Ramon, and they remained at the rock of Ramon four months. The men of Israel then turned back against the sons of Benjamin, struck them with the edge of the sword, both the entire city with the cattle and all that they found. They also set on fire all the cities which they found. Benjamin, the whole tribe of Benjamin, gone, except 600 men who fled into the hills. All cattle, all women, all children, all buildings, gone. We finish verse uh, chapter 20. We're emotionally exhausted, we're done, but now we think, okay, then maybe we're, maybe we're through then, right? Maybe we're finished. The sin has been dealt with. The people learned a lesson before the Lord. Maybe the people of God settled into some position of normalcy, right? That's what makes judges so nuts. Chapter 21, and the best title I can come up with it is A Crazy Ending. After all that, after 20 chapters of a cycle of sin and restoration, after four chapters of just craziness, we have hopes that maybe people have found a place before the Lord. Look what happens, verse 21. Now the men of Israel had sworn in Mitzpah, saying, none of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin in marriage. Hey, there's 600 people left, 600 men. We're not giving any of our daughters to them to marry. So the people came to Bethel and sat there before God until evening, lifted up their voices and wept bitterly. They said, why, O Lord? 
God of Israel, has this come about in Israel so that one tribe should be missing today in Israel? God, what are you doing? Anyone else ever do that in their life? I mean, your sin, it's your impetuous actions. You went in front of the Lord. Now you're sitting there in the ashes of your own work and you look up at God and say, God, how'd you do that to me? They went out before the Lord. They slaughtered an entire tribe of people, minus 600. And then they look up at God. God, how could you let that happen? Came about the next day, the people arose early and built an altar there, burnt offerings and peace offerings again, just going through the motions. Verse 5, then the sons of Israel said, who is there among all the tribes of Israel who did not come up in the assembly of the Lord? We got to come up with a solution. We still want to be 12 tribes strong. We might have been a little overzealous. We killed way too many of them. We better come up with a solution. Look what they did. For they had taken a great oath concerning him who did not come up to the Lord of Mitzpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. Look, if you don't join our war against Benjamin, we're going to kill you next. The sons of Israel were sorry for their brother Benjamin and said, one tribe cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for the wives, for those who are left, since we have sworn by the Lord not to give them any of our daughters in marriage? Man, we've blown it. We messed up. We completely annihilated one of the 12 tribes and we don't have, we didn't leave them any people, any wives to rebuild their tribe. Oops. Again, they make up their own crazy answer and they said, what is, what one is there of the tribes of Israel who do not come out to the Lord at Mitzpah? And behold, no one had came from the count of Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. For when the people were numbered, behold, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent 12,000 of the valiant warriors there and commanded them saying, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, with the women and the little ones. This is the thing you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every man, every woman who has lain with a man. And they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man by lying with them. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is the land of Canaan. So here we go. Their answer? How do we put the family back together, let's go kill this other tribe. Let's go knock out this other city. We've got 600 men up in the caves that need wives, so find 400 daughters that aren't married, save them. Everyone else dies. Just to keep up. Verse 13, the whole congregation then sent word and spoke to the sons of Benjamin who were at the rocks and proclaimed peace. Okay, hey, we're good. We killed your entire tribe and chased you into the mountains. Let's be friends. Benjamin returned at that time. They gave them the woman whom they kept alive from the women of Jabesh Gilead, yet there were not enough. Hey, here's 400 women we stole from these people that we killed. And then someone who's good at math says, hey, I think we're short 200. The people were sorry for Benjamin because the Lord had made a breach in the tribes of Israel. So many people just read through that verse. Who's at work here? This is God at work. I mean, these people of God are in opposition to God. Verse 16, then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for wives for those who are left since the women are destroyed out of Benjamin? He said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin so that a tribe will not be blotted out from Israel. We cannot give them wives of our daughters because we promised that we wouldn't give our daughters to the sons of Benjamin. What are we going to do? 200 people still need wives. So he said, behold, surprise. Hey, here's a great idea. There's a feast of the Lord from year to year in Shiloh which is on the north side of Bethel, on the east of the highway that goes up to Bethel to Shechem and on the south side of Lebanon, just in case you need to know where that is. They commanded the sons of Benjamin saying, go and lie in wait in the vineyards, go hide and watch and behold, surprise, if the daughters of Shiloh come out to take part in the dances, then you can come out in the vineyard and each one you'll just catch one. <laughs> you see, this is their solution. We need to go back to be the 12 tribes of God's people. Oops, we killed a whole tribe. 
So we'll steal $400 from these people and kill them. Oh, shoot, we're 200 left. Okay, you 200 guys, go hide in the vineyards, and when a woman walks by, take her. It shall come about when their fathers and their brothers come to complain to us, we'll say, give them to us voluntarily, because we did not take for each man Benjamin a wife in battle, nor did you give them. Also, so we won't be guilty. We want you to give your daughters, but don't say you're giving your daughters. Let them take your daughters and you just be okay with it. And then we're all good. No one breaks their vow. They get their people. 600 women don't get a say. And another city gets wiped out. Look at this, verse 23. The sons of Benjamin did so, took wives according to their number for those who danced, whom they carried away. They went and returned to their inheritance, rebuilt their cities and lived in them. Verse 24, the sons of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. Each one of them went out from there to his inheritance. That's how the story ends. The people legitimize assault, kidnapping, sex trafficking as a way of dealing with this problem. Then everyone loves the solution and everyone goes back home to their ordinary lives. Generations later, King Solomon would write this verse. I was reminded of it. It's my small group's Bible verse from a couple weeks ago in the kids' program. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. I wonder if Solomon was thinking about this time in Judges complete nation of people keep digging a hole deeper and deeper because they're relying on their own understanding instead of submitting to the Lord. Man, how within two to three generations did we go from Judges 1, an entire people going into the promised land with God promising to go before them that they will never know defeat. Everyone will experience the love of a family Everyone will be provided for. There will be no grave diseases. That was the promise in Judges 1. And in Judges 20, we're legitimizing an entire annihilation of cities, kidnapping of women. I mean, what on earth is going on? The Bible tells us. It's the last verse of Judges, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There's no authority. This is what happens to a culture where there is no presence of God. Everyone sets their own morality. Everyone proclaims their own gender. Everyone defines their own right and their own wrong. The mighty prevail. The weak fall. And decisions based on what I view as right. What began as a family problem ended up with a crazy culture and the gang rape of a woman which led to civil war, which nearly wipes out an entire tribe of people, which drives the people to approve of violent acts towards hundreds of women. Crazy. The Bible's response is, well, this is what happens when there's no king. So here's my question for you. Who is your king? Who is your king? Politics, is that your king? Money? Power? Fame? Comfort? Happiness? Who is your king? That's the question of the book of Judges. Who's the authority of your life? Look at the Apostle Peter's encouragement to Christians of his time. 
Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the two knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. The book of Judges is not just a history book. It's an inspired document. It's more than just a book to show us what sin did to them. It's a window into our own soul to warn us of what sin will do to us. And it gives us a peek into our future. If we don't recognize the true king. Question is, where do you need to put Jesus back? As the foundation and leader of your life. Let's pray. God, we go through this book of Judges. God, I'm glad we're done. It's depressing. It's disturbing. God, and it's uncomfortable because in our own hearts we recognize that some of the characteristics of those people fit the characteristics of our people. God, some of the direction of their lives directly matches up to the direction of ours. God, we're guilty of idolatry. We're guilty of rebellion. We're guilty of outright wickedness. God, so many in our culture, our homes are fragmenting. God, there's many times our spiritual leadership has been lacking. And God, our culture is sinking. God, we seem to be spiraling faster and faster, farther and farther away from you. And as we read through Judges, we begin to wonder, God, will the same thing happen to us? God, we're grateful for your word that you allow us to see the answer. God, the answer is to put you as king of our lives. God, protect us from putting other people above you. God, we agree and we recognize that, God, you have all power and you are sovereign and you are in control. God, all political power is held within your hand and is underneath your thumb. God, you are the author and creator of life. You are the alpha, the omega, the beginning and the end. God, why would we put anything or anyone above you in our lives? So God, now my prayer is that you will open our eyes and help us to see right now areas of our lives, areas of our homes, areas in our churches, areas in our community, God, that don't have you as king. And God, help us to surrender those areas to you. God, those of us who are struggling in our homes, in our marriages, God, change our heart from being the perfecter and corrector of our spouse. God, renew our focus and allow you to be the author, perfecter, and changer of our hearts. God, grow us that we might be used to be a restoration in our marriage. God, help us to be better models to our children and our grandchildren. God, as a church, protect us from being distracted by things of this world and help us to be about what you've called us to be. 
an instrument of your glory, a reflection of your grace and your truth. God, that we might be instruments of you to help people understand the power of Jesus still at work today. And God, we do pray. We do pray for our future, God, we ask. We continue to pray for peace in our land. But more importantly, God, we pray that people would have peace with you. May that start with us as we surrender our own lives to you. God, we lift our sins. We admit our failures. God, if there's someone here who is needing a fresh start, a new beginning in their lives, God, may you hear their prayer and may you respond as you promised. May you forgive them all of their trespasses. Fill them with your spirit, God, that they might experience a peace that's beyond human comprehension. And may you transform their life just as you promised. Make them a new creation. No longer a vessel of sin, but an instrument of righteousness and glory. God, we're grateful for the chance we have of renewal and restoration. God, may you use us, our broken vessels, our flawed perspectives. God, our broken beginnings. May you empower us. Fill us to the fullness of grace, Jesus, and give us faith that you're able to do far more beyond anything that we can ask or even imagine according to the power that's already within us. We bring all these things to you in the name of our King, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.